This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economist. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. Hello. You could say we're in interesting times, Gigi. The news on coronavirus beyond China gets worse. The government that wasn't keen on delivering a stimulus package has decided that it had better do so. The share market is tanked and then tanked. Shortly, we'll look at that stimulus package with someone who was there 12 years ago in the room with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd as the financial crisis was unfolding and quick decisions were being made. He has views about how this crisis is different and what might work and won't work this time again. Gigi, the share market was down 10% in a week, steady for a few days. Then at the start of this week, both here and in the US, down another 7%. Since then, it's been uh, fairly steady up and down. It's not meant to be like this, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's it meant to be like, Peter? Well, uh, what was the term? The great moderation. Yes. That's what they were talking about for so long, that if you like, uh, all of the big problems in economics, so the big problems being the macro problems, the economy had been solved. Oh, uh, no, because business cycles People always are that. a thing. No, remember that book, This Time It's Different? This time no, it's that different. was ironic. No, I mean. but this is classic. Every generation believes that, right, with whatever they're seeing. I mean, one of the classic plagues of, of humanity is that we do not learn well from history um, because we just think it's, it's always, you know, our generation that has solved the problems of the past. And in fact, business cycles continue to be with us. Now, we are finding that governments are learning how better to intervene in recessions or in incipient recessions as soon as they can work out oh my goodness, I think we've got one, then we know what to do. We know, okay, well, there's monetary policy levers and there's fiscal policy levers. And you look at where the effects seem to be worst and you target those industries. We saw a stimulus package in the GFC for Australia, which was one of the world's, you know, shining examples of what to do when you've got a collapse in aggregate demand, right? And so you put people's wallets into a better position, they'll keep spending and you can mitigate the worst of the effects. The problem is this time, It actually is different (laughs) because, in fact, we are not seeing that sort of uh, destruction of network links, links in the production chain. We are seeing that destruction. We are seeing some of it, but not in the same way. So what we see now is that China, for example, the manufacturing capital of the world, is not able to produce its products, its intermediate products, in the same quantities. And so that will be feeding through into final products and things that people can buy. But there are alternative substitute products in a lot of cases. In Australia, there are particular industries that have been hard hit. So tourism, higher education, airlines. And if we're going to be supporting anything in fiscal policy, presumably those are the industries we should support. But it's not as though somehow lots and lots of people throughout the economy massively are being thrown out of work. Yet... Not yet. And we're an island nation. We can check every single person who comes in here. We have a very advanced healthcare service. We are unusual in that respect. We That's are true, lucky. But we're not an island as far as production goes. Of course we not. We grow the cotton here, Indonesia, turns it into cloth, yep. then it, it's cut in China and, and so on. Definitely. Definitely. So there's, it's not like there's going to be no effect, but people will have money in the bank to continue to spend. And if the government is able to support the industries that are hardest hit, I don't think we're going to have as much of a dip as some people may be uh, fearing. John Maynard Keynes, the father of modern economics, famously said, economists are like dentists, or should be. He looked forward to the day when economists would look at a mouth, look at the state of the teeth, prescribe what was needed, or or do it ahead of time, you know, maybe put a little bit of sealant in, and uh, the problems would be solved. And for so long, 
with the exception of the GFC, with the exception of the global financial crisis 12 years ago, the exception of the tech wreck uh, with those uh, technology stocks that never really caused a problem here. It has seen that way, in fact, for a lifetime. For many people's lifetimes, it has seemed as if, if you like, they have perfected the art of dentistry. Mm -hmm. Well, we haven't seen something like the Great Depression, for example, where you had mass layoffs, mass explosions of, of productive capacity, and then idle capacity for years. Right? That was what was so painful about the Great Depression back in 1929. Right? It started with the stock market crash, and that was economy-wide. In the examples of the tech crash, the tech bubble, and then also the GFC, you've had uh, particular sectors which have gone bust, right? and then those sectors have tech propagated effects finance. through... Exactly. And then that has propagated through the rest of the, the economy um, globally. And so in the case of what we're seeing now, it's really this, it's the uncertainty around how serious is this going to be? How long is China going to be out of business? For how long is Italy going to be in lockdown? For, you know, how long are these things going to last? The longer that it happens, the more that there's going to be an impact through to, you know, all sorts of other places in the economy. Could the Great Depression, given what we know now, given our ability at dentistry, have been avoided? Well, I mean, the thing that, of course, saved us from the, the worst effects of the Great Depression was the Second World War. Um, in the U.S., there was also the, the Works Project Administration and the other aspects of the New Deal, which were essentially massive government infrastructure projects. If the Australian government wants so to... So if they'd done that a bit earlier... Uh, well, like I mean, we did here with the if you did it if you crisis. did it earlier before the 1929 stock market crash, you'd or be crowding out. Too. But then you'd be crowding out private investment. I mean, the great thing about government intervention is it can be countercyclical, right? If you're if you have a countercyclical intervention, then you are you are shoring up the economy when it most needs it, and that's what the Australian government could do if things get very bad. They could start investing massively in certain infrastructure projects, which will help to shore up some of that demand and some of the spending power in some of the sectors of the of the Australian economy that might be weekend. The worst one in my life, the worst financial collapse was in 1987. I was on the floor of the Sydney Stock Exchange. I'd arrived at work. I found that prices had gone through the floor. This is the chaos that was underway. There are crowds pushing against the windows where, where there's a sign saying don't panic and brokers are shouting sell, sell, sell. At the moment the main market indicator, the All Ordinaries Index, is down around 400 points, 20% of the total value of the market that is. No one has ever seen falls of this magnitude. The looks on the faces of those people have never left me. To get a handle on what's happening this time, to get a handle on a crash people are comparing to the global financial crisis, and certainly the stock market crash is on a par with that, if not Black Tuesday in 1987. I'm thrilled that we're joined by Dr Sarah Hunter, the Chief Economist in Australia for BIS Oxford Economics. Sarah has seen things from both the Northern and Southern Hemisphere, moving from Oxford's UK office to Australia three years ago. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Did you expect this sudden dramatic drop? And by that, I mean when there was news of coronavirus, because I don't think anyone expected the drop in the share market before that. Yeah, absolutely. Pre, pre-virus, it looked like actually things were getting better for the global economy. Uh, but post the outbreak in China, it was certainly a risk. It was certainly something I was looking at as a company we were looking at. That The key thing was whether or not the virus would remain uh, an issue for China and if it could be contained to China, in which case the rest of the world probably would have sort of carried it. It would have been a major shock, but not a, a global shock. I think once we started to see cases outside of China in, in a significant way and outbreaks that were not direct 
directly linked to people who travelled to China. That was the point at which a correction became. You can't, you can never say inevitable, but a near certainty. And now, obviously, look where we are it's globally and growing rapidly, particularly in Europe. And obviously, markets have corrected substantially over the last. You couple use the word weeks. correction. But we've had a, a drop of 10% in a week, uh, radio silence for a few days, then a drop of 7%. It's uh, been a, a bit steadier since. That is, for someone who's nearing retirement, say, that's a huge proportion of their money gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you are unfortunate in that you're, you were exposed to the market and, and were hoping that you could uh, perhaps realise some of that capital and you're now not able to, that is just desperately bad luck. But really, I mean, what the markets are trying to do right now is price this risk. And the challenge that we've all got, not just people who operate in markets, but economists, everybody is uh, quantifying the size of the risk. Uh, we can see now we're starting to get some data on what it's done to the Chinese economy. Uh, we've got some indication of what it's done to the economy here in Australia directly to the tourist numbers and the international students. But we know there's more to come uh, down the track. We know there's going to be supply chain disruption. You can't shut down China's economy for more than a month, which is effectively what's happened, and not feel the impact of that on building material supply, on the manufacturing supply chain globally. And there's, there's clearly going to be confidence impacts as well. If you're exposed to the tourism sector, you're going to be struggling uh, to meet your bills and things like that. There's going to be a slowdown in consumer spending. All of this will start to show up in the data as we get it over the next uh, few months. But right now, we don't know. And that's the challenge for markets. What should they be pricing in? So it's almost a holding thing because the markets need to work out what the value of the company is. They don't have information. Yeah, exactly. There's an information vacuum, if you like, at the moment. And And it might be worse. It might not be as bad. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it could be not as bad as as we think. And certainly, typically, through any kind of big exogenous shock like this, markets do usually overshoot. That's that's a typical historical pattern. So we would expect... You wouldn't be confident uh, to say that they have yet, though. Well, I'm not calling the bottom. That's the thing. That that is absolutely true. They could well have further to go down. I think if if we get to a year's time, the outbreak has been controlled. I think it's fair to say that we will have seen some recovery in the market. But the question being, from what bottom? Are we there yet? or if we got further to go, it's very hard to know quite where we're going to hit over the next few weeks before things start to improve. So the vast majority of Australian workers, and I'll leave aside the people right at retirement age that Peter was just talking about, but the vast majority of people who would generally promote uh, spending and be part of aggregate demand in this country haven't seen their network links, you know, torn asunder from this. This is not a typical recession where we've had breaks in the supply chain because companies have gone out of business and in Australia, people have been thrown out of work. So I feel as though there's still spending power there. It's just not yet being used in the same ways because people are not confident. Is that the way you think of it? If, if that's true, then we might expect this as a temporary you know, downturn, which will be compensated for in three months, four months, five months, when people feel a little more confident, they still have the money in the bank and they can quickly start spending again and that'll help the economy. Well, I think um, what we're seeing in terms of the exposure and the impact on spending, it, at the moment, the impact has been very, very sector specific. So most people don't work in the tourism sector. So they're probably not seeing it um, in everyday life for them. But for some people in the tourism sector, I think they will stand up and very clearly and loudly say to you, hang on a minute, I'm absolutely feeling this. And maybe if I'm running a small hotel out in rural New South Wales, I've already been hit with the bushfires. All my casual I, shifts are gone. All my casual shifts are gone. Exactly. Those people are feeling it. You and I may not know 
know them, but they absolutely exist. I think on on top of that, though, in terms of thinking about the the shock and how it's playing through, it's worth keeping in mind that supply chains are not instantaneous. We like to think of them as being instantaneous, but actually that they're not. It, it does take time for something to be produced in China, get on a boat, and get here to Australia. The to fact be that we consumed. order something and can get it the next day doesn't, doesn't mean, mean it it's made. Wasn't made yesterday. <laughs> no, exactly. It was made months ago. So this supply chain disruption channel that economists are now talking about a lot, that really is only going to start to hit over the next three, six months. So there's much, we can see that coming down the track, but we're not there yet. So panic buying aside, we're not seeing shortages in the shops and perhaps businesses aren't seeing yet. Uh, Their inventories get to a level where it affects production. But what we are now having reported to us is that firms are going to reorder and they can't, they just can't. The person they're ordering from hasn't got the stock to send to them because they've not produced. So that will impact in the coming months. So I think it's it's very much emerging, but we're going to see more of it. And that's the, the concern for economists, that's a concern for the RBA, and that's why the government are now announcing a package, whereas you know, right now it doesn't look like we necessarily need one, but they can see that there's an absolute need for one in the coming weeks and months. You're listening to The Economists on RN. Our guest is Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. In the midst of this, the oil price collapsed. 30%, just like that. And that caused the second big downturn in the share market. But this is what I don't get. Wouldn't cheaper oil be good for most companies? (laughs) Is there something going on here that's not rational? It's it's a really good question. I I think there's a a few things going on here. And obviously that that particular move in the oil price was really unrelated to the virus. We'd already had a correction in oil prices to take account of the demand shock. This is a supply shock where Saudi Arabia and and Russia in particular obviously couldn't agree to the uh, production cuts. Exactly, yeah. So we're getting more production and and so that's what's weighing on Which sent the market down 7%. Well, I think there's, there's a few things going on there. One, if we're thinking about the immediate impact of this shot in the arm for the economy in terms of lower petrol prices, for some countries that's going to have minimal impact if they're, they're dealing with the virus and the, the fallout from that. So China, for instance, they've still got limits and restrictions on day-to-day life. It's not really all that helpful if uh, it's cheaper for them to fill up their car, if they're not allowed to actually drive the car places. Italy, clearly, it's going to do nothing for them in the near term because the entire country is now on lockdown. So um, there's part of that. There's a feeling that, yes, the oil price has dropped through the floor, but how much help can that be relative to normal? And clearly the answer is less. I think the other facet of this is um, this kind of spat just raises geopolitical risk. This is and, between and Russia and Saudi Arabia over Exactly. The, and there's the you know, concerns about how it's going to play out. There's also concerns, I should say, about what it means for other producers. US LNG. Can well, they survive our, our at LNG 35 exports, bucks a barrel? Liquid gas exports Indeed. are linked to the Petroleum price, indeed. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, what does that mean for that sector? And uh, so, there's a. I think there's a lot going on underneath it that goes beyond the headline. We should all be able to fill up our cars a lot cheaper over the next few months, and that will be good. All other things equal. Problem is, it's not all other things equal. There's a whole lot of other negative stuff. Is what um, we're seeing just massive uncertainty, and the market almost needs to guess because the share price is a guess about the value of future earnings. Almost needs to guess what the value of company shares are. It's just not the information. Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair to say. Uncertainty creates generally volatility in these big swings and it is a very, very uncertain environment. It's almost, you know, unprecedented. We've got very few historical examples. You know, How far are, back would we have well, to go? Well, Spanish flu is, is an obvious comparison. Yeah, and it was 102 years ago. So this is so much bigger than SARS or than MERS or any of the other more recent pandemics that we've seen. So, I'm sorry, outbreaks, they're not those 
won't class as pandemic. So it's uh, it's a very hard situation for markets to price because it's so unusual. It's uh, you know it is a proper black swan event that that market analysts will talk about as a thing that's completely random that they can't predict and and you just don't know what to do with. And when you get that and then you get this oil, oil move as well all coming together, I'm not surprised that markets are struggling to figure out where they want to be and where they want to settle and what all of this means. And I think we'll get more volatility until we get information. We're all hungry for information, but unfortunately we've just got to wait for that. Sarah Hunter, you have been remarkable because you're an economist who admitted to not knowing what's going on. <laughs> so thank, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah Hunter, Chief Economist in Australia for BAS Oxford Economics. You're on RN. We're giving support to businesses of up to 50 million in turnover with grants of up to 25,000, an additional 100 million into support for aged care facilities, uh, the 500 million that we're putting into the state hospital system. Um, we put money in to support remote Indigenous communities. So there's okay. been a lot of thought go through into the planning of how we'll respond on the health side and on the economic side because together we will get through this and we'll get through it strongly. That's Prime Minister Scott Morrison, suddenly the man with the money who's prepared to spend some of it. In order to provide perspective on the Morrison stimulus package, we are joined now by a man who was there in 2008. Dr. Andrew Charlton was a senior advisor to Prime Minister Kevin Rudd during the global financial crisis and saw firsthand what economic stimulus can do to help stave off an economic crisis. These days, he advises mainly public sector clients and not-for-profits at the Alpha Beta Consultancy. Thanks, Andrew, so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. So what were the problems that you faced at the time as the financial crisis unfolded in 2008? Well, immediately after Lehman Brothers fell, we had a sudden closure of many credit markets around the world. Australian banks couldn't access the offshore financing that, that they need to sustain themselves and which is the lifeblood of the Australian economy. We had an extremely significant fall in stock markets. The peak to trough fall was around 60%. Uh, and we had a rapid rise in unemployment as the retail sector and the resources sector shed lots of jobs on the announcement of the crisis. So it was pretty grim uh, and, to be honest, pretty scary. Um, and the mood in the government at the time was one of shock, but also one of resolve, a recognition that this was probably the biggest financial crisis that any of us would see in our lifetimes. And the way that we handled it could have a big difference on the impact on many Australians. Part of it was fixing the plumbing, if you like, of the financial system. And part of it was big spending, which was predominantly households, was that obvious? Was there any doubt about that? Certainly uh, Australia did it first or first and biggest. Th that's right. But, you, you know, you're also right to point out that the policy response was actually very, very broad. You know, it often gets boiled down in the debates to being, uh, to being all about $900 checks. <laughs> but actually there were many, many prongs to the policies that the government introduced. There were there was support for financial markets in, in the form of restrictions on short selling. There was a series of financial measures to support sectors that were doing it tough, including the various parts of the finance sector, the retail sector, the construction sector. There was 
big support for the banks in the form of the largest ever guarantee of bank liabilities that Australia had ever seen. And this was, by the way, not Australia's official policy, which was not to guarantee bank deposits that uh, people would get their money back and decided over a weekend, suddenly, (laughs) as I remember, when trading opened Monday, you'd done it. Even though you'd had an inquiry which uh, said Australia should not do that. That's right. I remember sitting in my office on the Thursday and I took a call from my counterpart who advised the British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, and he said to me, Andrew, uh, I'm just calling you because, you know, we all agreed at the last international conference that we wouldn't respond to this crisis with any beggar thy neighbour nationalism and something terrible has happened in the UK. The Irish have guaranteed their banks and were sitting here in London watching people move their banks from an English bank on one side of Oxford Street to an Irish Irish bank on the other side of, of Oxford Street and transferring their cash across. And he said, we all need to be clear that we're not going to do this as a nation. And I listened to him and I said, yeah, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense when you say it like that. <laughs> and uh, over the next couple of days, um, we had a range of, of pieces of news come in which implied the beginning of a 21st century bank run. Uh, I, w- I was talking, Andrew, to a Treasury official in the park with our children on that Sunday, and he was saying, Peter, you've got money in you know, your redraw facility. Get it out because the banks have the option. And people who were aware of what was likely were planning to get their money out, as I remember. We had the biggest day of cash withdrawals from ATMs other than Christmas Eve. And, you know, when we saw that data, we thought, wow, you know, what does a bank run look like in the 21st century? Well, maybe something like that. And so on on that basis, the government made a very quick decision to guarantee all deposits in Australian banks. Um, And I had to call up my British counterpart and explain that we'd had a change of plans. (laughs) And, you know, that, that, that was an extraordinarily reassuring move for the banking sector, but it did create a lot of unintended consequences right through the economy. Um, you know, suddenly there was a lot of people who had money in uh, cash-like products just outside the banking system, like cash management trusts and other similar uh, vehicles. And, of course, suddenly those people found themselves on the wrong side of the line that the government had drawn between <laughs> guaranteed and non-guaranteed assets. And, we, you know, the government nearly killed that industry essentially with the stroke of a pen as people madly rush to withdraw all their money. So, Andrew, one area of economic intervention that happened at the time in 2008 that you haven't mentioned yet was uh, massive cuts in interest rates. Do you feel like they did a lot of the work to bring the economy back on track? They did. They did a lot of the work. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of debate and Monday morning quarterbacking about, you know, what, what was it that, that caused Australia not to go into a recession, you know, almost unique amongst advanced economies. You know, for me, it, it comes down to four Cs, China, the cash rate, checks, and the currency. And those four Cs, I think, all played a really important role. You know, China implemented a massive infrastructure stimulus that reflated Australian commodity prices. The cash rate dropped from, you know, it's hard to believe how high it was back then. It was 7.25% in 2008, and it fell to 3%. It's an enormous monetary stimulus. One complete percent, four cuts worth in one afternoon, as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember the minute when the news came through that um, that they'd cut by one percent, and uh, it was uh, it was it was very big news. We certainly realised that our friends at the RBA were taking this crisis extremely seriously. Your idea? I'm um, oh, sorry. Go on. 
Oh, I was going to say the, the other two C's, the, you know, the currency. People forget about the currency. But, you know, we had an Australian dollar was at 95 cents and it dropped 30 cents to 65 cents, which was a huge tailwind for exporters. And then finally, the, the checks. And, you know, you only need to look at the retail sales numbers that were crashing, crashing, crashing. Day the checks went out, boom, straight back up. Did you think that would work? It did work. On the graph, it worked hugely. <laughs> That's right. Look, look. to be honest with you, uh, there was a lot of debate. My take out was that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, at a time when people really needed money and the situation was worsening, putting money in people's pockets caused them to go to the shops. And you're talking mainly there about the demand side of the economy. So, you know, aggregate demand, as we speak of in economics, was flagging. And so putting more money into people's pockets helps them spend more and that propagates through. But of course, there's another side of the market, which is the supply side. And now in this coronavirus situation, some people are talking more about the supply side and supply chains, global networks, etc., than they are about demand. So do you think this time is different in that respect? And and possibly in others. I, I do. I do think this time is different. You know, it's the the most of the crises we've faced in our lifetime. You know, think global financial crisis, think tech wreck, think Asian financial crisis. They have been, as you say, what economists call demand shocks. Um, and those demand shock, the nature of them is that consumers get fearful and they shut their wallets and they refuse to spend. And that's important from the perspective of what you do about it, because in a demand shock, if consumers are fearful, you can stimulate them, you know, essentially give them money and encourage them back to the shops. But in a supply shock, you have quite a different situation. A supply shock is not caused by consumers unwilling to spend. It's caused by businesses not having enough product or services to sell. And that is the situation that we are in, at least in the first instance in relation to this coronavirus uh, businesses not having workers in their factories because they're quarantined or unable to get to the factory. Think about the automakers in South Korea who've had to shut down because the critical components they need in their production process from China haven't been arriving. Think about workforces that uh, are quarantined or even think about restaurants in Australia who have a supply problem because they can't provide a service that their customers at least think of as being safe. So there are there are there are measures that that you can take um, on the on the supply side from a government perspective, um, and also measures that businesses can take themselves, looking for alternative sources of supply, rationing critical inputs, uh, you know, diversifying the supply chains, and all those things need to happen in the in the coming weeks and months. Last question, Andrew: What's the biggest mistake to do something that's too big, to have too many billions, or to do something that's not big enough? in the environment we're in? <laughs> Just definitely not to do something that's big enough. I mean, there's been an enormous amount of debate over the last 10 years about whether the stimulus in 2008, 2009 was too big or too small. I just feel like that question is close to irrelevant when you compare it to the bigger consequences, which is if you don't get it right, hundreds of thousands of people could lose their job and tens of thousands of businesses could shut their doors. And if those things happen, then you're going to end up with a bigger cost to the government, lost taxes, uh, increasing unemployment payments. And so the government's first, second and third priority should be to ensure that people stay in work and businesses stay open and debating the fine points of whether the stimulus is a little bit too big or a little bit too small uh, is irrelevant and at the margins. Andrew Charlton from the consultancy Alpha Beta. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. 
That's The Economists for this week. We'll put links relating to today's show on our website. That's The Economists at ABCRN. You can listen to this program and all the others again, as well as via the ABC Listen app or your podcast app of choice. Next week on the program, the man we were going to bring you this week before the news about the coronavirus, Ross Garneau. He will join us to explain the costs and benefits of dealing with the other crisis on our doorstep, climate change. Goodbye till then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.